to In the Word with Pastor Don Haskins, where we open up the Bible to see what God's Word says and how it might apply to our lives. Our prayer is that you allow Jesus to change you from the inside out. And now, today's lesson. I've been taking questions from you guys, questions that might be on your mind, you know, prophetic questions, and it can be anything, you know, and now prophecy, there's a couple different forms, prophecy we look at, prophecy is, is something that is a foretelling, it's a foretelling, it can be in two different forms, it can be when you speak of foretelling or foretelling, it can be as what we're discussing here today, you know, questions that you have regarding the end times. What does the Bible say is going to happen in the end times? What does the Bible foretell? What does the Bible prophesy in the end times? There's another form of prophecy that is given, and that's the foretelling of the Word of God, foretelling of God's Word. And I, I believe that any anointed pastor that stands up in any pulpit, uh, any person who's a Christian, uh, who teaches, you know, is, is speaking in a form of prophecy. If you're reading God's word, if you're speaking God's word, if you're articulating God's word, you're prophesying what God is speaking to individuals. And so I believe pastors, the anointed pastors, are prophesying on a week-by-week basis because they're opening up the God's Word and they're articulating to you and I what God's Word says and bringing it to light, foretelling what God wants uh, to happen in our lives. And so um, there's a couple of different forms of prophecy, both being correct. What we are attending to ourselves today is the questions that you have as it pertains to future events, future events. Now, last week we we talked about a few different things. We talked about, uh, there was a couple questions that didn't really have anything to do with prophecy per se. You know, does God hear you when you only pray in your heart? What's the purpose of transfiguration? Thank you, Kevin. Uh, What's happening to us? You know, knowing what time it is, why don't we do what God wants us to do? What are we missing? Well, I think that there is a time, as even as we said last week, that we, we can become complacent in the life of, of a Christian. We have a hard time sticking with it, uh, sticking with the element of imminency of Christ's return. When, when I say imminency, you all know what imminency means. In, imminency, and this will help you from now on when you talk about, when someone says the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe in. I believe that Jesus can return at any moment. And the the neat way of understanding imminency is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus can return in a minute. Imminency, you know, in a minute. Imminency. And so he can return at any moment. And it can happen right now. It can happen right now. It can happen even before we end this service today. Um, Please um, pray for it. Hey, it'd be great to hear Jesus, you know, finish this message in heaven. And uh, we had a couple of other things... uh, did we talk about what's going to happen in the U.S. in the end time since we're not mentioned in Scripture? I think we did talk about that last week. That was the last question. Yeah, and, and it also had that, that slight little, it wasn't a rebuke by any means, it was, and that was an actual question, but 
um, you know, do you believe it's important to have an altar call each week? If we're not, why not? And there's actually another question in here that talks about the same thing. So obviously that's on your hearts. And we talked about that a little bit last week saying, hey, yeah, I do believe in altar calls and I like altar calls. I think that they're very important. When you're in a small church, it's, it's a little different, you know. You know, when you're in a large church, you have a lot of new faces on a week-by-week basis. I try to give people an opportunity to come to know Christ hopefully every week, and hopefully I will do the same this week. Because right now, if you are here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, what I'm about to talk about, what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks, it should freak you out. I mean, you should be very concerned. Because if you think that you're just going to slide right through and that you've bought the lie that the world is really, really, really trying to sell to you. And you think that, well, Jesus is a gentleman and he'll not reject anyone. You know, God is a God of love and he will not deny anyone, you know, because he loves us. I mean, God is love and so he's not going to send anyone to hell. And, and I guess I would agree with that in that God won't send anybody to hell. God will allow you to go if you want to. You know, and, and you go, well, I don't want to go to hell. Well, there's only one way to not go to hell, and it's through the avenue in which God gave to you and I. It's the only way to get into heaven. God made it very easy for us to know that there's only one door. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. There's only one way to cry or to, to, to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And, and God provided a way for you and I and made it very simple for us. We don't have to look at many different ways. We don't have to look at different spiritual gurus that are out there, you see. We don't have to look at uh, uh, all of these other paths. You know, There are a lot of people that say, hey, all roads lead to heaven. And, and I would say that's just ludicrous. That's just silly to say such a thing. That would like, be like saying, you know, all, you know, all roads lead to, you know, Michigan. Well, they don't. I don't know why Michigan came to my head. If you're from Michigan, woohoo, you know. But here's the thing. All roads don't lead to Michigan, and thank God that they don't. <laughs> you know? Actually, I have some I have family up there, and, and uh, so I could knock down on them a little bit. But, but here's the thing. All roads don't lead to Michigan. Well, they all will eventually. No, no, they won't. I-10, if you get on I-10, it's going to go all the way across. It's never going to go north. It's just not going to do it. You're going to go and end in L.A. I've done that drive. Has anybody ever done that I-10 drive all the way from one side of the coast to the other? Oh, then I don't want to talk to you. I'm sorry. I'm just joking. (laughs) Nothing, nothing. I said I don't want to talk to you, but I do. I want only to Texas. It's a long drive, isn't it? It's horrible. L.A. to Florida. Matt's done it. Anybody else do it? Arizona to here. Yeah, well, you have not lived until you've gone from L.A. to Florida. That's a, it's a long drive. But you know what? Matt, did you ever go through Michigan? I didn't either. I didn't either. On I-10, I never hit Michigan. And so the thing is, is that you don't go through Michigan. That I-10 does not lead to Michigan. And, and neither does every road that man take go to, go to heaven. Now, I guess technically you can say it's true. All roads lead to the, to the Father. But there are many, there's only one road that is going to be a very good road to take. 
all of the other roads will lead there. But where it leads to is a place called the, the seat of the great white throne judgment where you will stand before an holy God and you will, anyone who stands before, anybody who is before the great white throne judgment will not be entered into heaven. So I guess if you want to go to Michigan via I-10, it's, it's going to take you to the great white throne judgment, spiritually, if you will. Hey, I want to, ta- I want to be a Buddhist. Be a Buddhist all. Everything you possibly can be, that road's going to lead you to the great white throne. There's only one road that leads to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. I am the way. I'm not a way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. John 14, 6. You know that verse. So here's the thing, guys. If you are not saved, and we're talking about all these prophetic questions... And we're seeing prophecy unfold before our eyes, even to this very day. And you begin to see all of the things that are going to happen in the very end times. Know this. I would be afraid if I were you. I I would be very, very, very concerned. And so don't leave this service today without knowing whether or not you're saved or not. Make sure that you and the Lord are, are okay and that you're right and you are righteous before the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, we talked last week about, you know, even though, you know, Jesus fulfilled the 300 prophecies, um, but the Pharisees all missed it. How is it that we uh, think that we can understand it also? And I, and I would just say that because, in, and we talked about that last week, pick up the tape from last week, or not tape, but... Go online and listen to it. It's online. But basically we have um, Jesus that we have the luxury of Jesus. They didn't, you know. And, and so Jesus is the one that actually said, hey, this is, you've heard it said of old. This is what it meant. You've heard it said of old. This is what it meant. Now, here's the other thing. There is a way to heaven. There's, 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 and there's a way and it's through me. Broad is the way that leads to destruction there, however, and narrow is the way that goes to, that goes to heaven. You got to pick which road you're going to go on, the, the broad way or the narrow way. And and Jesus begins to lay out to watch therefore and be ready for you do not know the day or the hour in which the son of man returns. When Jesus says things like this, that would tell me and and hopefully tell you tell us that if Jesus says watch out and be ready for you don't know the day or the hour that the Lord is returning, that would tell me that it could happen at any moment, right? Right? I mean, it, that's, that's one of the proof texts to me that Jesus can return at any moment. Another proof text is we talked a little bit about it last week in Acts chapter 2, where you know the, the disciples and the others that were standing around when Jesus ascended into heaven on the Mount of Olives and, and they, they were looking at him and off he went into heaven into the clouds and the angels came and said, why are you standing here gazing at the clouds? Do you not know that the one who's gone up into the clouds will come in like manner? He'll come back in the clouds to receive you in the air. And, and so here's the thing. Jesus is going to come back. What do you think the disciples thought at that moment? That Jesus could come back at any moment, right? Or do you think that they're going, well, he went into heaven. All right, now, well, we have some time 
before he comes back. We have some time before he comes back. That leads us into our first question. Nate, throw that first question up there. Pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, which trib? I don't know who wrote that question, but that's a good question. What, what does that even mean? Yeah, the question is pre-trib, that, and that's all that was on the paper. Pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, which trib? Um, the, the word trib is literally tribulation. Tribulation. It's known as a seven-year period. Uh, it's understood in the Bible as a seven-year period. Um, 1,290 days, uh, 1,260 days, is 60, 60 days. 1,260 days comes up to in the Babylonian calendar Twelve is, is, is uh, three and a half years and then another three and a half years. There's two 1,260-day periods and, and they both equate to a seven-year period. And so what ends up happening is that we have, um, we have a tribulation period. It's a time called Jacob's Trouble. We understand it as Jacob's Trouble. We know that uh, there is, Daniel talks about it as a week. And, if, you know, in Daniel chapter 9, if you were to turn there, you don't have to, but if you were to want to, you're welcome to. But in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel, he speaks of a seven year period that is still yet to be uh, lived out upon the face of this planet. That. Uh, that there is a seven-year period that still has not been fulfilled. And uh, Daniel had been praying. Daniel had been in uh, captivity um, in Babylon. And when I say captivity, he had been taken from his homeland. Um, thousands of Jews had been killed. Daniel and his, some of his buddies had been taken captive to Babylon, um, which is across the desert. Um, from Israel into modern day Iraq, you know. And uh, what ends up happening is that as Daniel is in I- Iraq, he's serving a king, a Babylonian king. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. If you go back into the book of Jeremiah, you'll find that this Nebuchadnezzar, who is not a, uh, he's not one who fears God, he's not a believer. In the God of heaven, at least at the point when he took Israel captive. And yet the Bible tells us in the book of Jeremiah that God says, have I not appointed my chosen one Nebuchadnezzar? God handpicked a man that was not a follower of his to bring a judgment upon Israel. To bring a judgment upon Israel. And Israel, uh, for 70 years, was in captivity. Why 70? Well, it goes back to the days of, of the Old Testament where God said, I want you, know, you to observe the Sabbath. And every year you would observe a Sabbath. So you would observe on a week-by-week basis, you know, you would observe the Sabbath day is holy. Don't do any work on it. So you work six days. One day you have off. Uh, to the Jew, the Sabbath day was a Saturday. And so Saturday was the Sabbath. And just like us, just like us, we take what God says and we go, 
okay, well, that's great. We're going to be blessed for six days. Well, then some of us get a little stingy, don't we? We, we get a little uh, greedy. And so what we end up doing is going, my goodness, look how, much, how blessed I am for six days. How much more would I be blessed if I went for seven days? I mean, if I get this much in six days, just think I can get even that much more. I can even get a sixth more, you know, or a seventh more on that seventh day. Wow. You know, that's going to increase my bottom line. I'm going to be able to be successful. I'll be able to retire. You know, I'll be able to buy a boat. I'll be able to move to Florida, you know, and here we are. And, 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 and so the greediness took over. And not only that, but the, the Lord says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to work for six years. And I love God's work schedule. I mean, it's pretty cool, God's work schedule. I mean, let's, let's think about God's work schedule for a second and see if you wouldn't kind of mind this work schedule. Work for six years. And on the seventh year, you don't work for a whole entire year. <laughs> Woohoo! What in the world? And you go, well, I don't know that I'd make it in the seventh year. Well, wait a minute. The Lord says, no, I'll give you such increase in those six years that I'll give you so much increase that it will bless you for your, you'll be able to sustain yourself for the sixth year, but it also will sustain you through the seventh year and even into the eighth year so that you can get going into the eighth year and get your crops going and get all the different stuff going if you just do what it is that I've called you to do. Now, I'm going to tell you something even greater because mm. at the end of, once you do that for 49 years, everyone is a, is a you know, a, a divisible by seven, you know, your first seven years, your first, your seventh year, you, you rest, then you go six more years. And on the 14th year, you rest another six years, then the 21st day and so on and so forth, up to 49 years. On the 49th year, you rest. Well, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to also give you another reason to celebrate. I'm going to call it the year of Jubilee. <laughs> Jubilee is going to be a great year, God said to the Jews. So not only will you be able to take off for all 49, for the, all of the year in the 49th year, but I'm also going to give you an additional year, two full years of being off. How many would you, of you would like to have two full years off? Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Here's the thing. God says, that's it. And I'll give you so much that come the four, it'll, it'll sustain you for the 48th year, for the 49th year, for the 50th year, and even into your 51st year. But here's what happened. Wow, I've been blessed for six years. What would happen if I went for the seventh year? I'd even have that much more food. I'd have that much more money. I'd have that much more wealth. And that's when people begin to get greedy. Doesn't that sound like us? And, and so what ended up happening is that they robbed God of these years where they were to just be resting. And they didn't. And so God says, here's the thing. You've done it for 490 years. And so I'm going to take back my 70 years that you have robbed me. And you're going to go into captivity. And so the, the, Israelite, the, the, they, they, the Israelites, they went into captivity. Many of them died as a judgment. And they went into captivity for 70 years. In order for God to take back the 70 years that they robbed him of. And so... It was getting to the end of the, the 70th year as Daniel was taken away as a boy. He had risen to power, you know, to the second man, most powerful man in all of Israel, two different times. 
Daniel was a man of integrity. He was a man of, of uh, honesty. And, and even the, the kings that didn't you know, believe exactly as Daniel did, they honored him. I believe that Daniel's witness was the catalyst that brought Nebuchadnezzar to a place where he humbled himself and he became a brother. Nebuchadnezzar cried out towards the end of his life. He, he said, hey, the Lord is, God is the only God. There is none like him. He cried out to the Lord and the Lord healed him. I believe we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Now, mind you, you know this, Saddam Hussein, before he died, he said that he was a direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the last true world dictator that we've ever had upon the face of this earth. And so as we go all the way back in that time, he's the one that started the captivity of Israel. And so for 70 years, the Israelites have been in captivity to the Babylonians. And Daniel is there in the government, not compromising whatsoever. But at the end, he was nearing the end of the 70th year, according to the books of Jeremiah, he said. So Daniel was a studier of the word. And he began to pray. And as he began to pray, the Lord sent to him an angel to speak to him. And as the angel went to speak to him, he, uh, uh, he went in and, and Daniel, Gabriel comes to him and, and, and Daniel says, you know, while I was speaking in prayer in chapter 9 of, of verse, uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21 of chapter 9 of Daniel, Daniel says, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, which was the angel, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening prayer. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications or at the beginning of your prayers, the command went out and I have come to tell you for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, Daniel, Daniel, you know what? Heaven knows your name. You know, heaven loves you, man. Heaven greatly loves you. Those in heaven, they know your name. They know you, man. And they love you very much. God loves you very much. And God has sent me to tell you how this plays out. Not just your life, but how he intends to handle the end times for the Jew. And I say that because he says... Gabriel says to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Who are Daniel's people? Huh? Israel. Okay, let's not get confused on that. Because this is where oftentimes we get confusion when we begin to articulate the end times events. When we talk about prophecy, we go, well, look at what Daniel said. This is what happens, that there's 70 weeks for, you know, for the rest of the world. No, 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 for your people. We're talking about Israel. We're talking about Israel. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. And by the way, those three things that have just been stated by Gabriel all were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. The things that will happen in the second coming of Jesus Christ is to 
finishing up to bring in everlasting righteousness, to steal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That will be the second fulfilled completely, fully. Now, some of it has kind of crossed some lines, but, but fully these last three will be completed in the, in the second coming. And so Daniel, he hears the angel Gabriel says, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Now, here's the thing. We, we might think of that when we read it. We're kind of a little, little bit of a disadvantage here because when we hear weeks, we, we think, well, it's 70 weeks, 77 day periods. Well, in all actuality, this isn't, this isn't how a week is understood. Now, it could be understood as a seven day period, but it could also be understood as a, like what we would consider if I said, 70 decades are determined for you. What would you understand me to say? 70 years, right? It's 70 10 year periods, right? Or, uh, you know, I mean, 700. 70 10 year periods. Thank you. I love the mathematicians in here because we would be in trouble. Here's the thing we would know that that would be 70 10 year periods, right? 70 10 year periods. And so. That the, the term week is also referred not to as a decade, but as a week would be t- determined as a seven year period, a seven year period. OK, and, and it's it's interchangeable and it is. It is only based upon what is being spoken of, what what is being spoken of. Is it speaking of days or is it speaking of years? Well, this is speaking of years in 77 year periods are determined for the Israelites and for your holy city. What would be that holy city? We know that as what? What's the holy city for the Jews? Jerusalem, right. And, and then he says, these are the things that are going to happen in the first coming, second coming. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Add those two things up to me. Well, how many weeks would that be? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. 69 weeks. 69 seven-year periods. 69 seven-year periods. Know therefore and, 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 know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, the idea is to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay? Until Messiah the Prince. Notice this, that this does not say Messiah the King. This is Messiah the Prince. What is Jesus known as? He is the Prince of Peace, right? He will be known as the King of Kings, right? Right now, as we know him as Christ, he is the Prince of Peace. Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 seven-year periods. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. Now, all we need to have to do, and I don't really want to get too much into this, because this could take a whole message, but if you went back into the book of Nehemiah, and you look back in the book of Nehemiah, you'll find that there's a king back there by the name of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes gave a command to uh, uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. In a foreign land, he was the guy who tasted the food for the king to make sure that somebody wasn't trying to poison the king. And so Nehemiah was a Jew living in another land. His land, amongst the Babylonian exile, all that kind of stuff, and it's been destroyed and everything. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm I'm sorry, uh, uh, um, Artaxerxes or, or Nehemiah, he... 
hears some reports of some people who had actually gone to Jerusalem and came back. And he says, hey, can you tell me what does Jerusalem look like? I've been away for so long. What does it look like? Oh, it's totally in ruins. The walls are all down. The Temple Mount gone. It's just destroyed. Everything is just destroyed. There is no one living there, really. There are some that are kind of hiding out. It's like foxes and what have you. But there's just there's nothing going on there. And it destroyed Nehemiah's heart. And so here he is. It's a bad thing for him. He went into the king right after he heard this. He'd been praying. He'd been talking. He'd been so depressed about his own homeland. And he goes into the king and he's got this bad, sad disposition. And he goes and gives the king his food. What do you think the king's going to say? Wait a minute. Daniel, or Nebi, he got all these names in my head. Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you've never come into my presence in such a disposition before. I've never seen this countenance upon you before. Should I be nervous? <laughs> did, what did you taste? What's going on? And said, Nehemiah, he shot a quick prayer up to the Lord. And he goes, you know what? How can my disposition be not be bad? Seeing that the city of my father's lies in ruins it lies in ruins it's just it breaks my heart I just got word that my city that I grew up in that I that that I, my fathers grew up in it's gone it's just destroyed and Artaxerxes says well Nehemiah what would what would you have to be done that's when Nehemiah throws this quick prayer to the Lord okay I'm going to just go for it help me Lord well, I'd like to go back and rebuild the city to the king who had the power to do anything. The king said, well, okay, how long will you be gone and what will you need? Didn't expect that answer, I'm sure. Nehemiah, uh, well, I've been a cupbearer in your house so I don't have a whole lot of money. I don't have any supplies. Don't really have any help. Don't have any way of getting wood there or any building materials. I, I, I really don't have anything. Artaxerxes says, here's what I'm going to do. Nehemiah, how long have you been gone? I'm going to be gone a certain amount of time. But he goes, here's the thing. You go down into Lebanon before you go on into Jerusalem and you pick up all the wood you need. And I'll even send my men with you. I'll send a garrison. I'll send all of these soldiers to, number one, to protect you, but also to carry all the supplies into Jerusalem. And it's wild. Nehemiah's going, I can't believe that that just happened. And so he does. He goes. And, and as Nehemiah gets that word from uh, Artaxerxes, if you go back into the Babylonian calendar and you go back into the reign of Artaxerxes and you find out when this uh, command was given, you will find that that command was given in March 14th, 445 B.C. Now Daniel, moving back up into Daniel, go and restore and build Jerusalem again. The command went forth to do it from March 14th, 445 B.C., what Daniel has been spoken to by Gabriel, Gabriel says, in 69 seven-year periods, which is 483 years, and if you really want to become specific, you take those, 
day, those years, and now understand that uh, they didn't, back in that day, they didn't have the 365-day calendar year like we use today. What they would do is that they'd go on with a 360-day year period, and after a while, once you know, time started ca- you know, catching up, they'd throw kind of a different month in there, and they'd catch back up again. The, the Jews would. But they'd ca- carry on with a 360-day period of a year's. Okay? So their year was 360 days. So if you go back and you take 483 years and you times that by 360 days, you're going to come out to a number of 173,880 days. And so what happened is that Gabriel says that Daniel know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes, right? There is going to be Seven weeks and 69 weeks, 69 seven-year periods, the street will be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. What he's saying is that Jeremiah is going to build the street again. The, the, the going forth is going to build up Jerusalem again. But from that time forward, 173,880 days, Messiah is going to come on the scene. Now, mind you, fast forward up into the New Testament, 173,880 days later on top of the Mount of Olives there's a bunch of people gathered. Not simply because Jesus went there. There's just a bunch of people there. They understand there's a lot of people on the Mount of Olives wondering, hey, who's it going to be? Until Messiah the Prince. For the Messiah the Prince is going to come on the back of a colt, even the foal of a donkey, according to Old Testament prophecy. He's going to come as a king. He is going to be your king. And so the, the prophecy that the Messiah of the Jews was going to come, they knew. There was all these people standing out on the Mount of Olives. Even the Pharisees were out there. And they're all standing around, waiting. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes riding up on a donkey, the foal. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now mind you, no one mistakes who Jesus is at that moment. It's the reason that the people started crying out to him, Hosanna! Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, just, they, they didn't just start saying that because they felt like they needed to say that. They'd seen Jesus a lot. There's a reason they're saying that. They knew that their Messiah was going to show up on that day. What is 173,880 days after March 14th, 445 B.C., we're going to come to a day called April 6th, 32 A.D. And on that day, Jesus comes riding in on a, on, a, on a donkey. And as he's there, they start laying down palm fronds in front of him to make a court, you know, a, 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 a road for the king to enter into Jerusalem on. And he would ride into the gate... And here he is, he's writing in. And what do the Pharisees say? Do you not hear what these people are saying? Stop their mouths. Stop them from saying anything. What was Jesus' response? He says, listen, if I, right on, Ross, if I were to stop their mouths, 
the very rocks that surround you. By the way, there are rocks everywhere in Israel. Then there are a couple times that one thing that they don't have, you know, a, 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 you know, a minimum, I don't know, a, a shortage. Thank you, Andy. Stay with me, man. <laughs> a shortage of is rocks, man. And Jesus says, if I were to shut their mouth, the rocks would cry, would cry out. What would they cry out? I don't know what a rock would sound like, but they'd be crying out. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everybody knew that was the Messiah. That's called prophecy, gang. That's called prophecy. Jesus enters in. That culminated the 69 seven week period for the Jews and for your holy city, right? That's what was spoken of in Daniel. So now the 69 seven year periods are over when Jesus comes in to the temple. Well, did it start? Did the 70th year start right then? No. No, it didn't. It says after the 62 weeks, and when he says 62 weeks, it's just the way that, that verbiage is oftentimes written in Old Testament speak, and it, it's not necessarily written exactly the way that we write. But he says after the 62 weeks or after that 69th period, and what do I mean by that is that they coupled the seven weeks plus 62 weeks, the 62 coming on the end. So after that end of the, seven, the, the 69 seven-year periods is what he's saying, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Wow, cut off. That word cut off is the Hebrew word karat, K-A-R-A-T, which literally means to be executed. Messiah shall be executed, but not for himself. Who did Jesus die for? You and I. We have a prophecy that is just unfolding before our eyes, right? So here we have, he's going to be crucified, but not for himself. He's going to be crucified for you and me and anyone who would accept him. And the people and the people of the prince, lowercase prince, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, now we've got another prince that's coming in here. It's a different, it's a different uh, prince than the first prince, Messiah the prince, the prince who is to come. There's another prince that's going to come in. The prince who is to come, because I'm out of time and not have an opportunity to really develop this, here's the thing. The prince who is to come is the Antichrist. What is Antichrist? Antichrist literally is instead of Christ or in place of Christ or I am like Christ. And so the Antichrist, who is the prince who is to come, he's going to have people. The people who are not a believer in Jesus Christ will be under the family of the prince who is to come. And you know what, gang? That's the same as it is today. There's no middle ground. There is no, hey, I'm not a Satanist and I'm not a Christian. I'm nothing. No, you can say whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. The fact remains, if you're not Christ, you are Satan's. I, I, I liken it unto this. A parachutist jumps out of an airplane to go parachute, right? 
Got another guy in there who goes, uh, no way, man, I'm not going to do it. He has all the gear on and everything. And he's sitting there going, I, I've changed my mind, I'm not going to do it. But somebody behind him, maybe his wife, says, no, you're going. And she pushes him out. And now he's fallen down. Now, they both catch up to each other. And, and the one guy that went out first is going, isn't this great? I'm skydiving. We're skydiving. Now, the other guy can say, I'm not skydiving. I'm falling. I was pushed. I'm not, I'm not diving. I'm falling. No, I, I'm, I'm skydiving. I'm falling. I'm not doing the same thing you're doing. Well, are they both doing the same thing? They're both doing the same thing. They might have a different attitude in their mind, but they're both falling toward, they're both hurtling toward the earth, right? What's gravity? Andy. <laughs> I don't know what gravity is. What is that? I don't know what the gravity is, but here they're, they're falling to the earth. Now, they might call it something different. You might call it something different. I'm not a Satanist. But you know what? If you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're in his army. You are one of his kids. But I don't, I don't pray to him. It doesn't matter. Well, I don't call myself that. I don't care what you call yourself. You are hurtling towards the earth. Come up with something, but know this. He is your leader. Well, I don't want to be led by him. Well, then there's only one other leader, and it's Christ. There is no middle ground. And so you're either a, a, a one of the people of the prince who is to come, or you are one of the people of Messiah the prince. There is no middle ground. There are no, there's only two camps. You're in one of them. And the people of the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, shall destroy the city. What city? Jerusalem. And the sanctuary. What is that? The temple, right. And the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. And then he, he who? The prince of the, the, prince of the people who is to, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist. Then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. He'll have a treaty, a peace treaty. And in the, but in the middle of the week, in the middle of that seven-year period, in three and a half years, and at the three and a half year period point, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of, ab- of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation is determined, is poured out on the desolate. And so here we have this Antichrist making a peace treaty for a seven-year period. There's only one more period left of the 69 seven-year periods. There's only one more seven-year period that's left. And that period is the tribulation. That period is a seven-year period. Daniel talks about it as saying, hey, the prince who is to come, he's going to be revealed somewhere along in that first three-and-a-half-year period. But in the middle of that three-and-a-half-year period, at the three-and-a-half-year period, Period. He, a Mark, he will come in. <laughs> he will come in and he'll go into the temple. Now, what's the priest treaty he's going to do? He's going to allow them to rebuild the temple. Right now, Israel does not have a temple. Y'all know that? They don't have a temple. 
But do you know that they are ready to build a temple at a moment's notice? They're ready to go. They're ready to go right now. They have every article that is necessary to have an operable temple. According to them. You can look it up yourself. You can go to Temple Institute. and they, That's, that's a, a ministry that is over there that is dedicated to the rebuild, rebuilding of the temple. I, back when I was there in 1992, I sat there in a meeting with them one time and asked the question, you know, hey, you say that you have everything to establish a new temple. Does that mean that you also have the Ark of the Covenant? I didn't ask that question. Somebody else did. And the person, the, the Jewish fellow said, no, 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 I did not say we have the, the Ark of the Covenant. I said we have everything that we need to establish a working temple. And so the next question was, well, in order to have a working temple, do you not also need to have a working Ark of the Covenant? Yes. So you're saying you have everything needed for a new temple. Yes. So you have the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, no, no, no. I did not say we have the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a high secret even to this day. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? Don't know. Indiana Jones didn't find it. <laughs> but they're ready. They're training the kids. They're training priests to take over and start up the temple again. They're ready at a moment's notice. And back in that time, they said, we could have an operating temple in six months. We have everything. Well, that's another part of the, Meredith is saying they don't have the property. Well, technically they do. They actually have the land. They have, back in the Six-Day War, what happened is Meredith had said that they don't have the property, the Temple Mount. What they did is that as a, an act of goodwill gesture to the, to the uh, Arabs is that Moshe Dayan, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, when the Israelites, uh, you know, when the Israel you know, went and had the Six-Day War and what have you, and they recaptured Jerusalem. They recaptured Jerusalem. I have pictures of the day where the soldiers, for the very first time in their lives since all the way back in 71 AD the first time that a Jew had actually been able to go and see the site of his, of his temple where it was and, and the first time that they had been there for ages and, and the, just the wonder and the awe on their faces and, and the thing is is that back in that time the Arabs had taken they have a couple of different things up there. On When you look at the Temple Mount, you see that there's a Temple Mount up there and there's this golden dome up there and that actually is gold. That used to be, you know, uh, some other metal up there, but they have taken that other metal off and they replaced it by uh, the financing of King uh, Hussein in Jordan. He financed the dome to make it all gold. So now there's a gold dome up there. And, and so there's a golden dome up there that covers a rock that they say that, you know, Muhammad rose from up on the top of the mount. There's also uh, uh, down just to the, uh, uh, to the south uh, is a, uh, another mosque down there. It's called the Mosque of Omar. It's the fourth holiest site in all of, of, of Islam. 
on the Temple Mount, up there on the Temple Mount. Much of the stones that were to build both of those buildings were stones that came that had been built, had been used to build the temple. Do you remember that Jesus says, you know, to the, to the Jews, or well, I'm not to the Jews, but, but to the uh, disciples there in Matthew chapter 24, he says, do you not see? The disciples went, do you see how glorious this temple is? And Jesus says, you know, there's coming a day when this temple is all going to come down. There's not going to be one stone left upon another that will not be torn down. And that exactly is what happened in 71 AD. King, or, uh, General Titus goes in there and just destroys the city. They, didn't, they wanted to save the, save the temple. They went in there and wanted to eradicate the Jews. They were so fed up with the Jews, it's time to, to get rid of them. And the Romans just wanted them done. They wanted to completely and totally stomp them out and take total control. But they said, save the temple because it is a, 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 a masterpiece of beauty and of skill and of architecture. But one or two of the soldiers threw a torch inside of one of the windows and it caused everything to start on fire on the inside of the temple. And because all of the blaze on the inside of the temple became so hot, all of the gold that God had you know, uh, overlaid on every single thing that was inside that temple, it all melted into the walls, into the floor, into the cracks of everything. And back in that time, you know, soldiers oftentimes were not paid a wage, but much of their wage came from the plundering that they would receive after a battle. And so the soldiers began to topple the stones in the temple until not one stone was left upon another in order to dig out all of the gold that had gone down inside of the creases, thus fulfilling again yet another prophecy of Jesus. Prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. But back in 1967, the Jews reclaimed all of Jerusalem. But in an act of goodwill to show the Arabs that we want peace, we're going to give you the ability to police the top of the Temple Mount. Still ours. We could drive you off immediately anytime we want. But we're not going to do that. We're going to allow you to police the top for the, for, the, for the Arabs up there. And here's what we're going to do. We'll stay off of it. We'll stay off the top because it's a holy place for us anyways. We'll stay down here on the wall, the Western Wall. It's the reason Jews don't go up there today. Back in the 90s, I believe, is when Ariel Sharon started this Holy Intifada. You remember that Holy Intifada? Ariel Sharon walked up the steps and he says, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm the Prime Minister of Israel. I've never been up on the Temple Mount. I'm going to show you that I can go up there and do this. This is our land. We can go up there. Ariel Sharon, Prime Minister of Israel, he walks up onto the Temple Mount with a garrison, you know, with, with a bunch of soldiers and what have you to keep from being killed and what have you. But he walked up on the Temple Mount, of which they, they ultimately control it all. They have just signed it over to be policed by the Arabs. And that infuriated the Arabs so much that this holy intifada with Yasser Arafat began to become so crazy to where the Arabs up on top of the Temple Mount are shooting down at the Jews that are down there in the Western Wall and they were shooting back and just battles would just ensue. 
And so there was constant bombings. Bombings that haven't even stopped to this day. Here's the thing. The Jews do have the control of the Temple Mount. They've just relinquished it as an act of goodwill. Moshe Dayan did that. The one-eyed defense minister. To, to do that. To allow them to maintain the control up there. But they ultimately have the total control. Uh, it, it, so, one day, that Temple Mount is where the new temple is going to be rebuilt. This new temple, right now... Just me talking about the Ariel Sharon going up there. The major battle that went on for a Jew to even step up there on Arab, what they would consider Arab ground, which the Jews consider Jewish ground. It's a battle. You want to talk about the most uh, uh, fought over piece of real estate in all of the world? It's the top of the Temple Mount. There's a little gazebo up there. Just not more than 10 feet across. That little gazebo there. And the ground up there is different than any of the other ground up there. Everything else is inlaid, in, inlaid stones. You can see the stones and the, you know, the, 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 you know, the square where they've kind of patched it in there as groundwork up there. Except in that gazebo. That gazebo, if you go in and you look at that gazebo, that's bedrock. That's the bedrock on top of this hill on top of this hill. And as you look on top of this hill, you, you are on this thing, you look in this and it's a different, different kind of rock that's in there. To the Arabs, it means absolutely nothing, this little gazebo. They, they don't even pay attention to the thing. What's interesting is that they call that dome the dome of the tablets and of the spirits. Which, there was a fellow by the name of Asher Kaufman who, who uh, did much... Uh, archaeological digs around there back in the 80s and found that that area there was quite possibly looking at where the eastern gate is on the old city of Jerusalem, looking at all of the factors that, that would factor in that that actual location is most likely and if not probably the actual location where the Ark of the Covenant set. The dome of the tablets and of the Spirit. What was in the, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? You had the Ten Commandments in there? You had some... The Rod of Aaron? And you had, you had some old manna that was in there somewhere, huh? You know, so that was in there. The dome of the tablets, Ten Commandments, Spirits... You saw Indiana Jones. I'm just joking. But, you know, here's the thing. There's coming a day. You go back and you look in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. You're going to find that God tells Ezekiel to take a measuring rod. That's the cool thing that Asher Kaufman had done. Back when he was doing all of his archaeological digs that it was allowed. Went out there and he kind of measured everything out. And you find out that the dome of the rock, the 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 Ezekiel was, was told, here, measure all this stuff out. And he measured it all out and he shows the, the dimensions and everything. And he says, now, from this point outward, just give that away. That's not yours. That's just give that to the Gentiles. What's interesting is that that barrier right there, if you go just on the outside of it, is the Dome of the Rock of the Muslims. But on the inside is a place where the Jews could build their temple. What's interesting is that I believe personally that at that three and a half year period or in, in the beginning of that period that, that Antichrist 
he's going to create a covenant, a seven-year period. He's going to come on the scene. If we're here and we're Christians, aren't we going to know who it is? Tim, Tim, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. That's, that's the Antichrist, man. That's the Antichrist. But it says that he's going to confirm a covenant, a treaty. He's going to allow them to restore and rebuild their temple. They're going to restore and build their temple. They say, even back in the you know, 90s, that it would take them less than six months to rebuild it and have a fully operational temple. Ezekiel says that there's going to be a, a measuring. You measure out and you find out how both the Arabs and the Jews can both be on top of the Temple Mount. But in the three and a half year period, at the, at the end of the three and a half year period, which Jesus, he speaks in Matthew chapter 24, you guys know this, he talks about a tribulation period. And then he talks about the great tribulation. The tribulation period is a seven year period. The great tribulation begins at the three and a half year mark. What starts the great tribulation? Here's what starts the great tribulation. The Antichrist walking into the temple that has just been built. And he goes in and he proclaims himself as God. Yeah. I, nobody has been able to create peace amongst the Jews and the Arabs, right? Right. Nobody has ever been able to allow both of you guys to be on top of this Temple Mount at the same time, right? Right. Well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, this prince who is to come is going to say. I am the Messiah. If you go to Israel today and you ask them, who's your Messiah? They will say, it's a man that's going to be coming on the scene that will establish peace allow us to rebuild the temple and allow us to become a nation again. Yeah, you, do, you, do you know that, or to, to establish you know, uh, uh, rights within the temple again? So do you, do you know that you just described who the Antichrist is? And the Jews will say, you call him Antichrist, we call him the Messiah. But there's coming a time when he goes into the temple to go sit on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, claiming himself that he is God. That the eyes will be open of the Jews and they will rip their clothes and go, no, you're not meant to be in there. That is not you and their eyes will be open. And it's at that time that Jesus says, when that happens, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, don't go back to your house to get a coat. Don't go up on your rooftop. You just go and you run and you flee. You flee, what I believe is, to an area of the rock city of Petra. And, and so he's talking to the Jews, pray that your flight isn't on Sabbath. Well, he's not talking that to the church. He's not talking that to the church. I, I'm trying, I, I, I got to end because I am so far over time, but this stuff is exciting. It's exciting, but it's, it's also filled with with the reasons why I believe in the pre-tribulational theory or viewpoint. Jesus says, watch therefore and be ready for you don't know. If the Antichrist comes on the scene and makes peace, then I'm going to know 
that he's going to go in and sit on the temple, inside the temple, in the middle of the, peri- in the, middle of the tribulation period. So I'm going to know the day when Jesus is going to come back, right? The mid-tribbers say, well, that's when, you know, we're going to be taken out before the great tribulation begins. Paul, he writes in 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, you know what? There are those that are confusing you, saying that the rapture's already happened. Those are the preterists that say that the rapture's already happened. Everything's already happened. It all happens spiritually. Well, I sure hope not. I sure hope that this isn't the new kingdom. Because, man, I sure don't feel like it is. And, and, And so... There, are, there are, 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 are those that, that say that, that you know, it's going to happen in the, in the middle of the tribulation before all of the bad stuff begins to happen. And again, that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I don't want you to be you know, ignorant, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord. That we who are alive and remain, you know, we're going to be here. Those who have passed on are going to be caught up together in the Lord. Harpazo, harpazo caught up. We get the Latin, the Latin word is rapturos, where we get our English word rapture from. They'll be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. And, it, and so the, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the Lord, with the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. Amen. Now comfort one another with these words. And so in enough, if, if that wasn't comfort enough, you'll find that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you'll see that he also carries the same thought just a few verses later when he says this. He says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he, he, he says, guys, concerning the times and the season, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. So here's the thing that I have a question on, and this is the thing that we have problems on with the post and the mid or the witch or the, there's another one called the pre-wrath, you know, uh, viewpoint, which is before the wrath happens. And that could be somewhere either before or just after the middle of the tribulation. Who knows? Doesn't matter. It's just, we're going to be raptured out of here before all the bad stuff begins to happen. But if you look at the first three and a half years of the tribulation, there's horrible things that are coming down upon the face of this earth things that we've never seen before, things that are so horrific. But Jesus doesn't even call that the great part of the tribulation. He says, no, that's still coming. There's horrific things, that cataclysmic events that happen down upon the face of this earth. And we'll look a little bit about that in, in the coming weeks, but here's the thing. These bad things that are going to happen, that's tribulation time. Okay? So, if I'm a post-trib viewpoint, or a mid-trib viewpoint, or a pre-wrath midpoint, or viewpoint, here's the thing. I'm, gonna, I'm pretty much going to know that Jesus is coming back at this time. At the end of the three and a half year period, I can mark my time. Here's the peace treaty. Here we go. Seven years later, I'm out of here. That's post-trib. Well, you can't say that you're not going to know the day or the hour. You're going to know exactly the day or the hour. It's going to be seven years later. Mid-trib. I know exactly. The guy signed the treaty. From that point on, three and a half years later, here's the thing. I know when Jesus is going to come back for me. But all through Scripture, 
Jesus saying, Paul saying, John saying, Peter saying, watch out, you don't know when Jesus is coming back. Any of these other theories, any of these other viewpoints, you are not looking for the return of Jesus Christ. You're looking for the Antichrist. Because he's the one that you're having to look forward to to set your time. But God never wants us to look to the Antichrist. He wants to look to Jesus Christ, right? He wants us to look to Jesus and look for his return. I'm not interested in knowing who the Antichrist is. I believe he's alive and well upon the face of the earth right now. Don't ask me who he is. I don't know who he is. Neither do you. Neither does anyone. There are many Antichrists that have been on the scene from Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15. I believe it started with Cain. You see, Satan doesn't know who the Antichrist is either. But he's got to always be ready to pour his power upon the one who will become the Antichrist. He doesn't know who it is yet. But when the time comes, he'll know exactly who it needs to be. But see, I'm not looking for Antichrist. I'm not looking for anything. That's why I I believe I'm, I'm... I believe that in an imminent return of Christ. He says, we know, Paul says, we, you know yourselves perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. And I'm almost done. For when they, when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction is going to come upon them. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, they sleep at night. Those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Listen, important, very important verse, incredibly important verse for you guys to leave with, and it's this. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. All you got to do is pick up your book of Revelation and start reading from verse, from verse 1 of chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19. And you're going to find out there's some horrific things that happen in the beginning of the tribulation and there's even more horrific things that are even wilder in the second half of the tribulation. One thing that I don't want to be here for is at any part of the tribulation. There are those that say, well, Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The tribulation that Jesus used was with a little t. Yeah, we're all going to encounter tribulation, but not the tribulation that Jesus is talking about. And I just finished with this. The tribulation, Jesus says, in this world you're going to have tribulation. Where's the tribulation coming from? Tribulation is coming from the flesh, the world, or Satan, right? There's three things that are against you and I right now. Our flesh, the world, and Satan. The problem that I have with thinking that that's the tribulation is that from Revelation 6 through Revelation 19, what we see is that the tribulation is pouring out from heaven to the earth. 
It's not coming from Satan. It's coming from God. God is judging a Christ-rejecting world. God is judging a Christ-rejecting world. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time where God is dealing with Israel for the last seven-year period. They're going to believe in the Antichrist for three and a half year periods, but they're finally going to turn their heart toward the Lord in the second half. And the Lord's going to reunite them with himself. And they're going to be saved. But that seven year period has a twofold purpose. The one most important is that God is dealing with Israel. But God is also dealing with a Christ rejecting world. And what I understand my Bible to say is that God did not appoint me to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. Why am I going to endure wrath a second time? I didn't reject Christ. I didn't reject Christ. He took my sin upon him. He took my doubt. He took my shame. He took my sin. Everything that I was that was not Christ-like. He took it all and he washed me clean. He placed it upon his back. He placed it upon himself and he hung on a cross for me, thereby being judged for my sin. And if I have got to still be judged for my sin, then that tells me that Jesus' death on the cross was not strong enough for me. God is not going to pour his wrath out on me. He poured his wrath out on me when he poured his wrath out on his son, Jesus Christ, for my sin. I'm not here for that. You're not here for that as Christians. That's why I believe that we're not going to be here for the tribulation period. So, which trib? I think you understand. So, Ashlyn, I got through one question today. (laughs) Father, thank you so much. Oh, Lord, there's so much. There is so much. I knew this was going to be a long question to answer. I still have like 12. Help me to get through them. But Lord, help me and us to get through them to your satisfaction. We're not here for us. We're here for you. We're here to learn and know and be ready. We want to be like the the ten bridesmaids, uh, the five of the ten bridesmaids that made sure that we had our oil extra oil and then our candles were trimmed and we were ready for the bridegroom not the five that were not ready we want to be ready when you come back we want to be ready when we see you face to face we want to be ready when we hear the trump of God and the voice of an archangel crying out from heaven come up here We'll look in a little bit at that next week. But Lord, if there's no one in this room or no one, if there's someone listening and they don't have a relationship with you, God, I pray that today they would submit their heart to you. They would come to a place in their life where they would recognize, you know what, I don't have it all figured out. One thing I know that, God, you do, you have it figured out, and I want to make sure that I'm saved and that I'm with you that my life is no longer being lived for me, but it's being lived for you. I'm a sinner. 
that is not a shock to anyone, especially not to you, Lord, and definitely not to me. I do not deserve your heaven. But God, if you love me so much that you would send your own son to die for me and pay for my sin upon a cross and rise again three days later for me so that I can simply appropriate his judgment that was upon his shoulders his death but then his victory and his resurrection for me if I can appropriate those things upon my life Lord I do that even at this moment I know that I in and of myself can never be good enough to enter into heaven but Lord you loved me so much that you became a man and you died on a cross for me and you did everything that I could not do so that I would have the option to receive that unto myself and be forgiven myself and to become a child of yours. Lord, this day I become a Christian. I give up my life, Lord. It's not mine anymore. It's yours. My sin, my baggage, my shame, my depression, my sadness, my critical heart, my gossiping mouth, my drunkenness spirit, my addictive attitudes and vices. I lay them down at the foot of the cross. They are yours, Lord. You deal with them. Give me a new life. Your word says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And so, Lord, today I take all my old and I lay it down before you. God, I want to walk out of here new. I want to walk clean. I want to walk right with you. God, show me how to do that. But at this moment, in this time, at this very second, Lord, thank you for accepting me as your child. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. You are my God, my King, my friend. Thank you for your glorious grace, your mercy. Give me a new life, Lord. Wash me clean. Make me new. Help me to walk in you from this day forward. For the rest of us, Lord, you've shown us that time is short. Help us to be ready. And help us to go and spread your gospel, your good news to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. So, did Jesus cause a change in you today? Or do you need prayer? We'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by visiting our website at calvarychapelcf.com or call our office at 941-926-3717. That's 941-926-3717. Again, thanks for listening to In the Word with Pastor Don.